appreciate the uh, person who's donated it. Oh, we're about to get started with the singing. Uh, let me see that song sheet. What's that first one? All right, Battle Hymn of the Republic. What's your name, ma'am? Suzanne Monk is going to lead us in the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Let's make it nice and loud. Here we go. Episode 10, Ceilings and Floors. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to examining the events of January 6th, 2021, in Washington, D.C. Uh, audio at the beginning of the show was from a rally held in support of the um, January 6th Capital Insurrection defendants who were being held at the D.C. jail. A crowd of about 100 people came and um, labeling these people whose acts are on video as political prisoners, uh, they came to support um, the insurrections at the Capitol. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. This has been an eventful week in the ongoing investigations and prosecutions of Capitol insurrection cases of lately. There have been a whole bunch of pretrial detention issues, some new arrests, one defendant who failed to appear, and a variety of hearings. So let's begin with the questions regarding pretrial detention. From the outset, there's been controversy regarding the pretrial detention of the Capitol insurrection defendants. For people who recognize that the attack on January 6th was a direct assault on electoral democracy in the United States, the prospect of any of these defendants being freed pending trial seems inconsistent with the need to safeguard the democratic process from acts of terror. On the other hand, there's been some confused ramblings on the part of the far right, who alternately hold that these defendants are all BLM and Antifa, or crisis actors, or pawns of the FBI, or just patriotic Americans who are a little overzealous and got caught up in the moment, and besides, they didn't carry firearms, but if they did, it was their right to do so, and they were just tourists anyway. And the real crime was committed by the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt. This, of course, is the classic Chewbacca defense. Um, just throw enough stuff up and uh, try to confuse people. And that's, that's indeed, I think, in some sense, what is being done right now. Um, they're just throwing up enough to try to confuse people from the basic facts of what we all saw happen on January 6th. Since these defendants made the choice to travel to D.C. to commit their assault on the Capitol, these cases are being heard in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, which currently has 13 judges and two vacancies. Some of the controversy regarding the disposition of cases has been due to the perception that judges appointed by Donald Trump may show favoritism toward these defendants. I don't know that this is really a valid concern. Trump was, in many ways, the most corrupt president since Harding, and that's saying a lot. But with regard to judicial appointments, he relied heavily on the nominees provided by the Federal Society. Now, I personally find the Federal Society entirely wrong-headed in many, many ways. 
but the shortlist for judicial appointments provided to the Trump administration were, in most respects, less reprehensible than the Trump practice of, say, putting Jared Kushner in charge of prison reform and Middle East peace at the same time. There's a sense in which we probably should be grateful to the deference Trump showed to the Federalist Society. The jurists he appointed are actually real jurists. These aren't Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani-type attorneys. They do have some commitment to the rule of law, even if they uh, espouse a judicial philosophy that uh, people in the left or the mainstream uh, might find objectionable. Given that the alternative was probably just random attorneys Trump himself might meet on the golf course or people Ivanka might meet at cocktail parties, it's probably not an altogether bad thing that Trump used candidates put forward by the Federalist Society. I also think that many of them are aware that the fact that they were appointed by Trump is like an asterisk next to their name in the history books. And so they've actually taken the opportunity to demonstrate their independence whenever possible. So take Judge Timothy Kelly, for example. When the Trump administration tried to remove the press credentials of CNN's Jim Acosta, the case was heard by Judge Kelly, and he ordered that Acosta's credentials be restored in his decision, CNN versus Trump. Then there's Judge Daphne Friedrich. She ruled in the United States versus Concord Management and Consulting LLC in favor of special counsel Robert Mueller and against Concord Management, a firm owned by Yevgeny Viktorovich Prigozhin, a close associate of President Putin who's known as Putin's chef and also someone who's been involved with the Internet Research Agency. Then there's Judge Carl Nichols, who, in TikTok v. Trump, partially enjoined the Department of Commerce from implementing a Trump executive order prohibiting Google and Apple from offering TikTok in their app offerings. So that's three out of the four Trump-appointed judges serving on the bench in D.C., uh, with the remaining judge being Trevor McFadden. Now, as far as I can tell, McFadden's never taken the step of ruling against the Trump administration in a significant case. In fact, he's ruled to support the Trump administration position uh, in several cases. So, out of the four Trump appointees to the D.C. District Court, he's the one who's not taken the sort of public opportunity to rule against Trump. So, still, when it comes to these pretrial detention decisions, a lot of people have questions about the D.C. District Court. Now, I'm a skeptical person, but I don't think these concerns are particularly well-founded. Of the current judges serving on the D.C. District Court, one was appointed by Clinton, eight were appointed by Obama, and only four were appointed by Trump. This must be the most heavily Obama-dominated district court in the country. Moreover, of the Trump appointees, three of them have taken pains to make sure that they've demonstrated independence in a very significant case. So by and large, most of the decisions in these cases are going to be issued by Obama-appointed judges, simply because that's the makeup of the bench of the court in D.C. I do think that the district court in D.C. is probably well aware of the need to ensure that the process appears to be legitimate, that Trump judges aren't seen to be showing leniency to these insurrection defendants. And here, I think there's more cause for hope and there is genuine concern. So remember Judge McFadden, our Trump-appointed Federalist Society judge who's never taken the opportunity to rule against Trump in an important case? Well, 
He's the judge in a case involving one particularly notorious defendant, Timothy Hale Cusinelli. Hale Cusinelli faces a seven-count indictment, including the felony charge of obstructing an official proceeding. Hale Cusinelli is also notorious because he's an Army reservist, possesses a security clearance, and also works as a contractor for the U.S. Navy, all while being an active, avowed neo-Nazi white supremacist who, at times, would wear a mustache in the style of Adolf Hitler, and who's also racked up an appalling record of racism at his workplace, apparently without ever having, uh, you know, seen any consequences. I can only imagine this guy is, you know, he's working as a contractor for the Navy. Uh, he's engaging in racist behavior at the workplace. He has a fascist haircut. He's got a Hitler mustache. And somehow, HR hasn't done anything about it. Um, in any event, Il Cusinelli, uh, you know, is in this case, that's being presided over by McFadden. And so, um, how's McFadden doing with an actual Holocaust-endorsing Nazi? Well, for one thing, unlike many of these defendants, Hale Cusinelli is still in pretrial detention. This is remarkable because, for reasons I'll explore in a moment, most defendants who don't have criminal records have been freed. Even the ones who face allegations that are, include more serious allegations of violence than Hale Cusinelli does. So I have to think that the optics of releasing an actual Nazi faced with involvement in a putsch is something that Judge McFadden may have taken into consideration in ordering Hale Cusinelli's pretrial detention. McFadden also has another prominent defendant, New Mexico County Commissioner Hoy Griffin, who had claimed that his arrest was the result of selective prosecution on the part of the government, done because of Griffin's public support of Trump. Judge McFadden rejected that claim, finding that the AUSAs, quote, could rationally forego federal prosecution as to most trespassers while deciding that Griffin's leadership role in the crowd, position as an elected official, and more blatant conduct at the scene merited him different free treatment, end quote. So, again, when I looked into this, McFadden was a judge, the Trump appointee, who stood out to me as one I think who might be most likely to be sympathetic to the insurrectionists. But the evidence that I've seen looking at his cases seems that he's not showing any leniency toward these defendants, at least no more than the other judges in the same court. So for people who believe that these defendants pose a risk to the community, this is one instance where a Trump appointee has done better than many Obama appointees. Now, this brings me to the question of why it is that so many of these defendants have been released from pretrial detention in the first place. We already talked about the Munchel decision in Episode 8. U.S. v. Munchel, which was the first appeal of a pretrial detention case to make it to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Court, I didn't really touch on the judicial context of this decision, uh, but that's relevant here because of the perception that judges are being too lenient. Munchel was handed down, again, by this U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Court, which is regarded by attorneys and students of judicial politics as the second most important court in the country, after the U.S. Supreme Court, because it hears all appellate cases involving constitutional law and all these cases involving the bureaucracy. They have the original jurisdiction for these, well, not appellate jurisdiction, for these cases that are heard um, in D.C. So, 
And if you're, you know, you all be involved in the case involving these regulations, uh, this is your, the court to whom you're going to appeal your, your case in D.C. So for most of the judges who still on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, this is the apex of their career. There's no way up. Uh, you either go to the Supreme Court or you cash in to go into private practice. In terms of the number of people who are covered by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Court, one might imagine that's one of the smallest caseloads. Uh, but again, it's not because of this huge administrative caseload, it has one of the largest uh, caseloads of any court in the appellate system. And again, because it's important for all these reasons, in the course of the last 40 years, it's been a real farm team for the Supreme Court with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, John Roberts, and Brett Kavanaugh all being elevated to the Supreme Court from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Court. Now, I already summed up the basic uh, premise of Munchel in Episode 8. The basic claim that why, for why these defendants should be released uh, based, is based on the idea that liberty should be the norm, um, and also that in these circumstances, the danger is passed because Biden's election has been certified. And so there's little danger in releasing these defendants from pretrial detention because the precise circumstances aren't going to be the same. The problem here is that it should be you know, evident, I think, to anyone who's uh, been paying attention, certainly anyone who's been listening here, that the underlying conditions have not really changed. Yes, Biden's election has been certified. But that doesn't mean there aren't other instances where the same people who stormed the Capitol might engage in political violence. And we've already seen that, you know, there are people who were at Charlottesville, for example, who wound up taking part in the storming of the Capitol. Uh, there are people who are engaged in political violence in the Pacific Northwest. Again, you know, people such like Ethan Nordine, uh, you know, all these figures in the Proud Boys uh, who've been doing this all along. Um, you know, it wasn't just particular circumstances, right? There is a danger of far-right political violence in this country that's been ongoing, I would say, at least since the bombing of the Murrah Building back in 95. So the same liars are out there telling the same lies that motivated the mob on January 6th, and we're seeing these same basic conditions. There's this whole cottage industry of predicting new dates for the next release of the Kraken or the storm. Uh, Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow, has been out there promoting the idea that Trump's going to be reinstated somehow as president on August 13th, even though there's no constitutional process whereby this can possibly happen. That's what they're doing. And so there's a lot of chatter that somehow one of these various election audits or fraudits will turn up votes for Trump, and that's somehow going to result in him being recertified, although, again, there's no constitutional process whereby that can happen. So the decision was authored by uh, Judge Robert Wilkins. And Wilkins, of course, is an Obama appointee. Now, this was a, a three judges in, in panel, and uh, Wilkins is the one who authored the decision. And I think that there was a Trump, Trump judge on the panel. Um, but it was important in some sense that um, some of the, a lot of these important decisions are being handed down from Obama uh, appointees. I do think that there is uh, cognizance, and it's there in the literature, um, that attorneys uh, know how to play to the press, uh, lawyers generally, and certainly judges 
know that their legitimacy depends in no small measure on public perception. And um, unfortunately, I, th I think Wilkins's argument, so you know, you can't, then there have been other people who say, well, it's all Trump people. Again, this is not a Trump appointee. Um, that doesn't mean I think he's right, right? I think he's overstated the uniqueness of the situation on January 6th. He's assuming a rationality that's simply not there. Um, there have been other episodes of far-right violence that we should recognize they're part of the same movement. So the plot against Governor Whitman of Michigan, the takeover of the state capitol in Salem, Oregon. The Munchell decision has been used at this point to release almost all the defendants, except for the ones who have prior criminal records, uh, or people such as, uh, you know, and it's a handful, uh, Hale Cusinelli, right? Um, so we don't know at this point uh, if, you know, some of these defendants who have been freed uh, have been radicalized even further by their experiences in the Capitol insurrection. Um, there have been documents that have been introduced uh, where they, you know, they say they're going to come back, and you know that was the lesson that they've learned. And again, this dangerousness standard established in Montreal, I think, is is off, as I mentioned in episode eight. Um, there's a con this is in a context, by the way, of a federal system that regularly jails. Drug defendants, especially you know people who have been selling narcotics or accused of selling narcotics, on the basis of dangerousness, right? So I think it's forty-something percent of people who have faced narcotics uh, accusations are wind up subject to pretrial detention, and I think that there's you know we should revisit this idea because it may be a greater danger to the community that these capital insurrection defendants commit more political violence then someone winds up buying narcotics. You know, as bad as our drug problem is, right, I don't know that, you know, the fact that someone is, you know, going to be selling narcotics in the community is an equivalent danger to someone engaging in political violence. In unrelated coincidence, by the way, we've had the first bench warrant issued for a no-show. Michael Gareth Adams, uh, this defendant failed to appear for a hearing two weeks ago, and then failed to appear again last week. Now, there's nothing particularly noteworthy about Adams. Um, he's not facing, apparently, charges of violence, uh, although it, it does make sense that someone who is already inclined to object to the authority of government might miss a court date, right? So this man is now a fugitive, and the story hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But it's worrying that it might start a trend. If capital insurrection defendants start to fail to appear on a regular basis, the D.C. courts might want to reevaluate the standards for dangerousness set in Munchel, right? Perhaps we take into account this, this prospect of a flight risk. This has been done on an individual basis. Um, there have been you know, people they've decided who are a flight risk and they've detained them. And I think that perhaps we, we might want to consider that some of these defendants, you know, in addition to the dangerousness, might also... Uh, pose a flight risk. So some of these releases, you know, really baffle me. Um, there's Michael Foy, right, uh, who's number five on my list of the worst in episode eight. He was ordered to release on July the 2nd, um, but he's the one who's on video hitting an officer with a hockey stick uh, at least 12 times or 10, 12 times. Very hard. It looks like he's, it looks more like attempted murder to me. Um, of course, I'm not an attorney, 
But if you're willing to do that to a sworn officer on the steps of the Capitol in broad daylight, um, what else are you willing to do, right? This guy is, is free at the moment. So I don't know. Hopefully, I maybe the pendulum is uh, swinging in the, other, in the other direction. Uh, on July 20th, uh, just yesterday as I record this, another similar defendant, Robert Morse, was ordered detained by an Obama appointee, Judge Michael Harvey. Morse, who's age 27, is a former Army Ranger and a substitute teacher who faces a nine-count indictment, including seven felonies. And Judge Harvey said, uh, you know what, we got to hold on to this guy. In his decision, he said, quote, he came to the Capitol, suited up for violence, was an active and enthusiastic participant in the riot for a sustained period of time. He's in a different category of dangerousness, end quote. Now, he actually reminds me a bit of uh, Edward Lang, who was number four on the list uh, in episode eight, and talk about him a little bit in a moment. Um, but, you know, it could be that Morse is going to appeal this, and then we'll see that what, you know, the appeals court for the U.S. District Court of uh, Columbia is going to do. Because, uh, remember, Munchel and his mother, Eisenhardt, uh, were, were nonviolent defendants, right? And so it could be that they've got one, they may have one standard for those folks, and then maybe they need to ratchet it up a bit uh, for people like Morse and Lang and Foy, um, you know, and, yeah, because Morse's case reminds me very much of Lang, because he, he's there, he's right at the front lines, fighting, you know, consistently fighting the police hard for about two hours, uh, solidly. And I think that, you know, if we're going to look at dangerousness, you know, the level of judgment that's involved there, uh, the just, you know, this is not someone who is really capable of self-restraint, uh, arguably. So part of the problem overall in these pretrial detention cases Maybe they don't really know what to do with these defendants, where to put them. Now, the logical place for them is the D.C. jail, a federal facility operated by the District of Columbia. But the warden there has made the decision to hold these defendants in protective custody. So they're in solitary, effectively, for 23 hours a day. Um, because they're pretrial inmates, the government does want to keep them safe, just as they try to keep all inmates safe. Um, but the warden appears to believe that these mainly white defendants, uh, some of whom are actual white supremacists, right? Hill Cusinelli, uh, a Hitler mustache-wearing Nazi, um, you know, might not be popular with the inmates uh, at the D.C. jail, which is a rather notoriously uh, rough place. Um, and it also happens to have an overwhelmingly black inmate population. So, who knows? I can't second-guess the warden. Uh, he has a better handle on his institution uh, than I could hundreds of miles away. Um, uh, I do know this, though. I mean, when you look at what the far right have done with the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, how they've made her into, into a murder, uh, one does wonder what would happen if anything unfortunate happened to any of these defendants in the D.C. lockup, right? They're, they would get the full horse-to-vessel treatment. So... Um, these conditions of confinement that have been necessitated by concerns for the safety of these inmates, uh, these, sorry, these defendants, um, 
have created their own problems. Now, they're, they're in solitary for 23 hours a day. Um, but, you know, seems like the right call to me. I don't know. Uh, on Saturday, July 17th, uh, again, that was the audio we opened the show with here. Uh, there was a relatively small protest of about 100 people. And it was held in D.C. just, again, to protest conditions of confinement. And many of them, you know, called the defendants political prisoners. Um, now, I, I think this protest actually could have been even more popular, could have been more people there uh, than what happened. But there's a special problem that they, these people face on how to frame these defendants. That is to say, not, not frame them as, you know, uh, but how to, uh, you know, construct a narrative. They still haven't figured it out. You know, their initial line was, though these people are BLM or Antifa. Um, but again, they're on video. We know who they are, right? And uh, you could, might remember uh, Edward Dick Lang from Episode 8, The Worst, who made it all the way to number four on my tentative list because he appears to have fought for two hours armed with a baseball bat and a riot shield. Now, when he was arrested, Ned Lang, his father, had no comment for the press other than to note that his son had had issues with substance abuse in the past. Um, Ned Lang has resurfaced. He was one of the family members of January 6th defendants who addressed the assembled protesters. So here's what he had to say about the conditions of confinement uh, and what's happening with regard to his son. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ned Lang. Thank you very much for coming. It's great to see so many people. I was here uh, about a month ago in front of the Department of Justice and spoke. There wasn't many of us, but by God, we're growing, and I appreciate that. So my son, Jake Lang, he's been here now since, a, uh, since January 13th. He's been uh, in lockdown, solitary confinement now for the last two and a half months. Two and a half months in a hole. Two and a half months in a hole. Okay. All right, right in front. Oh, sorry. So two and a half months in a hole. Can you believe that? Last time we were down here, the whole Patriot Unit was locked down for eight days. Eight days solitary confinement in their cells for no apparent reason. Do you think the people that run this jail should be locked in their cells for eight days with no, no human yes. contact, no yes. contact with anybody else, just yeah. food, and that's it? No showers, no nothing? No way. So the, problem, the, the bottom line is, is this. This is unfair, not right, un-American. Putin called out Biden three times at the G7 summit. America no longer has a right to call out any other country because of their political prisoners or human rights violations. It's, it's horrible what's going on. The other day, my son was in his cell. The sergeant opened the cell door and maced him. Maced him. For no reason. We have eight witnesses. We have, I, don't wait on, I don't want to get everybody straight up against these folks, but I'm telling you what's going on in there is not right. So my son has found God. The good news is I want to lead, read you his latest psalm because it will touch your heart. One second. there, by the way, is that a couple of officers from the D.C. Uh, facility came out to 
uh, observe and keep an eye on uh, the assembled protesters. And um, the organizer of the protest had to, as you heard, restrain them, right? So, but that's Ned Lang, father of Edward Lang, uh, citing President Putin of Russia, saying that his son is subject to human rights violations and claiming the sergeant had maced his son in his cell. Now, again, we don't know the circumstances. We don't know that it actually happened, but if it did, there probably was a reason, right? Officers do not usually just routinely go in and mace people uh, without reasons, you know, who are being held in protective custody. So um, I, I think Edward Lang's attorney should probably speak with Edward Lang's father, Ned Lang. Uh, there are at least a thousand images of Lang fighting police on January 6th. So it's a really bold strategy for Ned Lang to claim that the prosecution of his son is somehow illegitimate. Um, he's being locked up at, for, you know, dangerousness. And I, I think that there's plenty of good evidence for him to back him up. So as the process moves along, we're going to see more pleas and fewer issues, uh, perhaps, of pretrial detention, although uh, they are still adding new people to the BOLO page, the Be on the Lookout page. Uh, they added, I think, uh, another 20 or 30 individuals who need to be identified, uh, which is on the Department of Justice site, uh, the FBI site, uh, on the Capitol breach. So if you look for Capitol breach cases, FBI, uh, it'll direct you to the BOLO page, B-O-L-O. Um, but let's talk about some of the pleas. Again, these are people who uh, we no longer have to say allegedly, right? Because they have agreed that they're guilty. So that's refreshing. Uh, Brian Ivey, 28, who pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor. And he'll be sentenced on September 28th. And he faces up to six months for parading, demonstrating, or picketing. And he has a U.S. public defender. Jessica Bussell. Uh, who also pleaded on May 24th of parading, demonstrating, or picketing, uh, who is a private attorney, uh, Nabil Kabira of D.C., and uh, her husband, Joshua Cablebustle, again, uh, parading, demonstrating, or picketing, uh, also pleaded on May 24th. Josiah Colt pleaded on June 30th to obstruction of, official, of an official proceeding. That's a felony. And you've probably seen pictures of Josiah Culp. Uh, he was notable for dangling off of the Senate gallery. No word yet on when he'll be sentenced, but uh, perhaps sometime next fall. Valerie Elaine Erickey pleaded to parading, demonstrating, or picketing. Um, Edward Hemingway, who entered his plea on uh, June 4th, and his private attorney out of Fairfax, Virginia, also pleaded to parading, demonstrating, or picketing. And Anthony Mariotto, uh, who has a plea agreement hearing on the 19th. I have not seen the, the results of that yet. Um, Anthony Carl Mazacoco, who pleaded on June 1st, and whose sentencing is set for October 4th, also pleaded to demonstrating or picketing. And the first uh, misdemeanor sentence, Anna Morgan Lloyd, um, who is, I believe, a 52-year-old grandmother, 
uh, who was private attorney, uh, who was assigned to the defendant. She made news because uh, her attorney had her watch uh, a list of movies uh, that were basically a kind of a, a homemade curriculum on sensitivity training. And um, her sentence has been the re- re- subject of, of many objections because she got 36 months of probation. But again, most of those, with the exception of Colt, um, are misdemeanors, right? And so people said, well, this Anna Morgan Lloyd is going to set the standard. Uh, people are going to get probation for all this. That's not necessarily true. Um, other situ- defendants may be differently situated. So we don't know that probation is going to be automatic for all of them. Um, but one might expect that, you know, most of them will probably, uh, want, assuming, again, they have clean records, um, you know, find a, wind up doing some form of probation. Now, uh, again, Colt is a different category. He pled to a felony. And that brings us to the next topic, which is um, a the, another guilty plea, which was from Caleb Berry, a 20-year-old oath keeper. And also there was a guilty plea from one of his co-defendants, um, a Grodz. Uh, so that's Mark Grodz, uh, who pleaded on June 29th, Mark Grodz of Alabama. Grodz pleaded to conspiracy and obstruction of Congress, and Barry pleaded to conspiracy and obstruction of Congress. Uh, Barry's indictment uh, and his, his plea agreement were just recently unsealed, probably arrived at some time ago. Now, both Barry and Grodd are significant because they were both directly involved in stashing a variety of firearms at the Comfort Inn in Arlington, Virginia, for possible use in the insurrection. So, since these plea deals require their cooperation, this could be well be a sign that there are further arrests to be made of oath keepers involving these weapons charges and possible conspiracy charges. So, both Barry and Grodd's um, are looking at, according to the sentencing guidelines, somewhere between 50 and 63 months, uh, which could be reduced based on their cooperation. So this is something that we're going to have to watch in the massive Oath Keepers conspiracy case. Uh, also, on July 20th, there was another very significant arrest, Mark Ibrahim, who's remarkable because he's yet another serving law enforcement officer who's involved in the insurrection. According to media reports, he was a probationary employee at the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Ibrahim was fired from the DEA last March because of the photos that surfaced showing his involvement on January 6th. Um, there are photos of him with his DEA badge, which he was wearing on his belt, and apparently would be would lift up his shirt. It was obscured by his shirt. Uh, and in some of the photos... He's raising his shirt to show his badge to people. And also, again, according to uh, the photographs, he appears to have brought his government-issued firearm to the insurrection. Now, that's not going to help him, probably, in court. If the government issues a weapon to a sworn law enforcement officer, that officer isn't supposed to turn around and attack Congress, who are the people, after all, who are in charge of the DEA budget. So another uh, significant case to watch. All right. So there's a, a less, I don't know, I want to say important uh, case 
that got a lot of attention this week because it is the first sentencing of a capital insurrection defendant who has pled guilty to a felony. And we'll talk about this uh, for some time. That's Paul Allard Hodgkins, who pleaded guilty to an obstruction of official uh, proceeding and was sentenced to eight months in federal prison, which is significantly less than the 18 months that the government had been asking for, but also more than what the defense sought, which was uh, no time in prison whatsoever. Of course, they're going to ask that. They're not going to get it. It's a felony charge. So according to the government, Hodgkins came ready to do violence. Uh, he brought goggles and leather bracers, like literally something out of Dungeons and Dragons, and other protective gear, um, and also a Trump flag on a rather stout-looking pole, similar to the kinds of poles that many of the other defendants are shown using as weapons. Uh, Hodgkins is a 38-year-old man from Tampa Bay, Florida. So if you look at the press coverage uh, of his story, everything begins with Florida man pleads guilty, Florida man sentenced to eight months, Florida man this. Uh, if you have a news article about you that begins with Florida man, you've probably made some bad life choices. Um, Hodgkins has a clean criminal record, or had a clean criminal record, and um, there's a lot of concern today uh, among people who are following these cases that this sentence is going to set an example for other felony defendants, right? That this is the bar. Now, he's noteworthy in part, uh, again, in terms of what he did on January 6th, and I can say that because now he's pleaded guilty. Uh, he was one of the first defendants to make it into the Senate chamber. And he appears in many of the iconic photos of insurrectionists uh, gathered around the desk of the president of the Senate. The judge in Hodgkins' case is Randolph Moss. Uh, like Robert Wilkins, Moss is an Obama appointee. In fact, he occupies the same seat on the district court that Judge Wilkins did before he was elevated to the appeals court. So it may be intentional, again, talk about the kind of optics, um, that it's an Obama judge issuing the first sentence. Um, although, again, with most of the judges on D.C. Circuit bench actually being Obama appointees, it, that, that wouldn't be too unsurprising. But I think Moss handing out a sentence that's 10 months less than what the government requested looks very different from, let's say, Judge McFadden doing the same thing. So, why does Hodgkins get a felony? Well, because he was in the well of the Senate. Um, and, you know, again, not everyone who actually went into the Capitol actually went onto the Senate floor. And um, that's obstruction, right? You know, arguably you could charge a lot of the other people, uh, the so-called tourists, with obstruction as well. But that's why Hodgkins clearly deserves his felony charge in the eyes of the government. Now, there's no way to get around the, the fact this is a pretty good deal for Hodgkins. And he really appears to have benefited greatly from the fact that he was willing to go first. He was willing to be the first defendant to face sentencing. So instead of the five-count indictment that he'd been facing, obstruction plus the other four counts that everyone who invaded the Capitol, uh, the misdemeanor counts, everyone who uh, invaded the Capitol got that day, uh, he gets just the felony obstruction charge. Right, so the other the misdemeanor charges no longer apply. So if his decision to go first was prompted by uh, his attorney Patrick Leduc, then Leduc was offering him rather good advice. But I'd like to say that that's kind of uncharacteristic of the way Leduc 
Representative Hodgkins overall. Um, one of the things that Luduc did was to claim that Hodgkins had found Jesus. Uh, similar, by the way, to, to you know Edward Lang, his, his son found Jesus too. I want why? Why are all these people founding Jesus? Finding Jesus? Where was Jesus? Was the lack of Jesus somehow the problem of the mob? I, I don't know. Um, but Leduc said that Hodgkins is now regularly attending a Baptist church um, and uh, posted a picture of Hodgkins smiling uh, as opposed to the, the, the grimace that he has in the, the photographs from the Senate. And so that somehow he, he is a changed man. Um, in his pre-sentencing brief, Leduc implored the court to follow the example of Abraham Lincoln in being conciliatory and offering grace, as Lincoln did, to the defeated Confederacy, uh, a point that he also repeated a couple of other times uh, during a half-hour rambling statement he made to the court. Now, to my mind, this is a bad example. Leduc was trying to claim that his client was less violent than most of the defendants in the insurrection. And so, to my mind, it's probably a poor choice to compare Hodgkins to the secessionist traitors who took part in the bloodiest, most protracted episode of insurrectionist political violence in U.S. history. Also, this comparison invites us to remember that Lincoln didn't survive to end the see, you know, to see the end of the war himself, because he fell victim to a murderous Confederacy cons Confederate conspiracy to assassinate him. So, all in all, not not a great look. Um, in one article in the hearing, one of uh, Hodgkins's supporters is reported to have approached his attorney, Leduc, afterwards, simply to say, quote, you talk too much. Um, and I'm, I'm not really, I'm not a fan of Paul Hollard Hodgkins, right? But I, I think what Leduc did uh, actually makes him seem sympathetic by way of comparison. Um, I, I think some of the reaction to the sentence may be overblown. Yes, he was the first felony defendant to be sentenced, but... Is he really typical of them? No, I don't think so. Uh, plus, in court, Hodgkins denounced the big lie. He acknowledged the wrongfulness of his actions, and he showed contrition. And I'm not sure many of the other defendants are willing to do this. Indeed, we've seen some of them make asses of themselves in court. Zachary Alam did that just today on the 21st. Um, said he was firing his attorney. He wanted to act pro se and uh, generally acted like an inmate. So, um, Hodgkins, you know, is different from someone like that. And, yeah, he brought rope and goggles and some other gear. But, interestingly, he, he didn't assault anyone, right? Hodgkins, on his way to the Senate chamber, would have had plenty of opportunities to fight with the cops if he wanted to. And he didn't. And if you just look at the charges, there's not too many people who are really in his category, right, who... Um, you know, intruded into the Congress, but is also facing obstruction charges, but not other significant crimes such as uh, conspiracy or uh, destruction or theft of government property uh, or assault on, on an officer. So I, th I think the public, you know, rightly, rightly, I, I think that, you know, personally, from my standpoint, you know, Everyone who went into the Capitol should do jail time. But there's an element of the glass seeing as being kind of half empty. Um, when really, 
This is a fairly ordinary plea bargain for a defendant who has no criminal record, uh, who's pled guilty to a nonviolent felony. Now, again, arguably, I, I think this, you know, the attack on January 6th, that's why I'm doing this podcast, um, is a threat to democracy and perhaps the ordinary standards of the ordinary criminal justice system, you know, uh, shouldn't apply, that perhaps, you know, it should be regarded more seriously than, than how these defendants have been charged. But nonetheless, to my mind, the important thing to know about the Hodgkins decision is that uh, it shows the AUSAs are holding the line, or at least a line, which is this. Hodgkins was charged with a felony, and he had to plead to a felony. And this has been true in these other cases as well. None of the defendants who've been charged with felonies have been able to plead down to misdemeanors. And obstruction seems to be the one that they're going with unless they assaulted federal officers, right? So uh, if you look at, there's several categories of defendants. And if you look at the cases from a bit of distance, you see that Hodgkins falls into a a relatively small category. Yes, charged with a felony, but not crimes of violence. So... Uh, as I see it right now, there's four categories of defendants, two of whom we haven't seen represented yet in terms of plea deals, um, as say among non-cooperating defendants. So there's the non-violent misdemeanor defendants, the Anna Morgan Lloyds of the world, uh, the Bustles, and um, these people are probably going to get offered pleas that involve no jail time, assuming they have clean records, and we'll see what happens if any of these defendants actually want to play hardball. We haven't seen what's going to happen to a genuinely unrepentant defendant. And I think that there are probably going to be some defendants in that category. So I don't necessarily think that probation is going to be automatic, but that's what most of them will get if they accept a plea bargain. Then there are the nonviolent defendants who committed obstruction or other felonies. Um, And that is a category that Hodgkins is in. And they'll have to plead to a felony. Uh, the AUSAs have offered no sign that they're going to be willing to settle for less. So in this understanding, that's why we have the title of the episode, um, the Hodgkins plea is in the ceiling. It's a floor, right? The floor is if you're charged with a felony, they're going to have to plead to a felony. Now, many of these defendants, you know, again, Hodgkins gets a bit the benefit of trying to go first and being contrite. So... Some of them might be sentenced to more time, uh, but I expect eight, six, eight months uh, is kind of a bare minimum here, and that's going to go up from there. We'll see. I hope I'm not wrong on this, um, because already eight months is is extremely generous. The next category are violent defendants and nonviolent conspirators. So I think the AUSAs are going to take a very hard line in these kinds of cases. So, for example, in the cases of the two Oath Keepers who pleaded this week, um, they're looking at 50 to 60 months. And I think that's the floor for this category. How much are people who are not cooperating going to get? Um, You know, five years, 10 years. So uh, the people who are, you know, looking at charges of conspiracy, uh, felonies, people who are looking at uh, crimes of violence, they're going to get worse deals than Grodd's and Barry got. Now, then there are the most violent defendants, right? The worst. So, the worst defendants. 
Uh, in this category, I'd, I'd include people who are uh, accused of conspiracy as well as violence, uh, people who are armed with a dangerous weapon, uh, people who cause serious injury, uh, people who have prior criminal histories, um, people like Lang, who was accused of fighting uh, with officers for two hours, like Moores, who was accused, again, of fighting, you know, consistently, like, it's not just he hit somebody once, right? Consistently fighting officers with a weapon uh, for hours. Um, these people could be looking at decades behind bars, right? People like Shane Lee and Jenkins. As a criminal history, it's all these markers, could be looking at, you know, a very, very, very long time. Uh, will be elderly by the time he's released. So, uh, again, we haven't actually seen anyone from these last two categories yet. Uh, the only defendants who've pleaded to these sorts of charges are oath keepers who are cooperating. The government isn't really going to give away anything for free here. Their evidence is extremely strong, and if some of these defendants are getting less time, it's because their co-conspirators against whom they're going to testify are going to be facing even more time. So for this category of defendant, especially those who are in custody, there's no reason to think the AUSAs are going to be beating a path through their doors with deals. Um, Zachary Alam today actually demanded a deal. The government is not obliged uh, to give him one. Uh, he's known as Helmet Boy, right? He was the one who actually shattered the glass uh, in the barrier to uh, the speaker's lobby, uh, which is where uh, Ashley Babbitt winds up uh, making the choice to try to intrude into it and, of course, ultimately uh, uh, winds up being shot. So, again, government isn't obliged to give Alam or any of these other defendants anything uh, like a deal. Uh, there's great evidence against them, and there's, you know, uh, oftentimes admissions of guilt from these defendants. All right? So someone like Lang, for example, who posted on his Instagram, you know, a little arrow saying, this is me. And I think that people who are disappointed with the Hodgkin's sentencing do have something to look forward to. Now, we've seen already in Hodgkin's a floor, right? That's a floor for a felony defendant. A nonviolent felony defendant who has no criminal history, charged with one count of obstruction, pleaded to, to one count of obstruction in exchange for dropping the misdemeanor charges. I think eventually we're going to find out how high the ceiling is. And I, I think that, you know, people who are disappointed today uh, have at least something to look forward to uh, with regard to some of the more violent uh, defendants or the ones who played a key role in the conspiracy involving the Capitol insurrection. All right. So try to sum up with some of the events. Uh, I missed a few things. I know. I'll try to cover those next week. Um, now, next episode, uh, again, look at the steady stream of events that are happening. I, I kept being surprised as, as I was writing this week's script. Oh, geez, there's, there's more, there's more, there's more. Um, I'm going to look into the strange case of Pauline Bauer, who is a sovereign citizen. We'll talk about what that means and why she wants to go pro se to act as her own attorney. Zachary Alam, same thing. I don't know that he's a sovereign citizen, but who knows? Uh, that, that bizarre little ideology seems to be uh, spreading. If you have any questions or comments, please address them to the show at capinsurrep. That's at cap, C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P on Twitter. And also please rate the podcast and recommend it to your friends. 
So thank you very much. I'm Scott Kuhn, and have a great week.